If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This episode is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, in which we explore a subject through questions you've sent in via social media and popular internet search queries. Today's topic is the Industrial Revolution, And our expert is Emma Griffin. As well as being president of the Royal Historical Society, Emma has written several books on the 19th century, including Liberty's Dawn, A People's History of the Industrial Revolution, and Breadwinner, An Intimate History of the Victorian Economy. So first of all, let's start with the very basics. What was the Industrial Revolution? Okay, that's probably one of the biggest questions that you could ask me. Um, I think... I always preface by saying historians aren't always entirely in agreement about what the Industrial Revolution is. So this is my interpretation of what I think the Industrial Revolution is. I think prior to industrialisation, most people, um, everything they ate came from the land, just as it does today. But everything that they wore also came from the land and every all their buildings, their wooden buildings were made of wood that have obviously come from the land in some way. People got around on transport. So these are horses that are fed um, through things that come out of the ground. So everybody's got this very close connection um, with the land, not just for what they eat, but for all their clothing and for all their other human needs. And industrialization is really the process where we move away from this very intimate connection between our needs and the seasons and the land. And very often it's the land that's very, very local to you. So you're not just dependent on the land, you're dependent on the land where you are. Um, Industrialization is all about a switch where we no longer are dependent in our immediate environment, um, that we manage to source our needs and particularly things like our clothes, our buildings, our transport, and things that people never did need before, such as our mobile phones and our music and everything else that we consume in different ways. We consume it in a completely different way and we get it in a completely different way. Lovely. So next up, we've got another question, which is seemingly very simple, but I know that historians do debate about when was the Industrial Revolution? And I should preface that by saying we're talking about Britain here. Because we're not looking at a political revolution where we can say that this is the person, this is the date, this is the day, this is the time. We can kind of report and record all these details. Industrialization is a slow, long drawn out process, particularly in England, because there was no template. Nobody knew exactly how to industrialize. Nobody knew they were industrializing. Even the language comes much, much later. So it's a slow process. Um, We are starting to look quite different from other parts of the world by the late 18th century in that we are using machines to do a lot of our making and we are starting to make things that are not local. So cotton, for example, is taking off, but cotton is not local to Britain. Cotton comes from 
very distant parts of the, the world. Um, we're using machines and machinery to do the making of the cotton, you know, to turn the raw cotton plants and the fibres into cloth. So this is all started to develop in the 18th century. But for me, industrialization really takes off when we start using steam engines to um, power our economy, when we to power the factories, to power the trains, um, to do the work. So prior to that, the work is all being done by us or by horses or by water or by wind, uh, maybe by wood. We start to use coal and we start to use much, much more power, much, much more energy in our economy. And, and you can actually date that quite closely in the case of Britain. Steam engines start to spread through transport and through industry in the 1820s and the 1830s. So although those 18th century origins are there and they're really important, for me, industrial revolution proper is a 19th century phenomenon. So now we've got some questions um, from readers on, on some of the big picture aspects of the Industrial Revolution. And the first one I think is really interesting from Ado Mohammed on Facebook. And he asked, what was the set of conditions that gave Britain the lead in the Industrial Revolution? Well, one of the things that um, helped Britain was obviously the fact that we had a lot of coal. So for us, industrialization is very connected with coal. We had very rich coal deposits. Um, so that was kind of one of those underlying things that are always there. But of course, many other places have coal and we had always had the coal. So in some ways, the real question to ask is not who has the coal, but what was Britain doing? Why was Britain so um, forward in getting the coal out of the ground and then using the coal to do useful things for us? Because if you think about, I mean, all our um, industrial revolution inventions, they're very rooted in the cotton industry and particularly the spinning element of the cotton industry. So that traditionally had all been done on the old traditional spinning wheel that we know from our fairy tales. It's a kind of piece of wooden equipment that we operate by hand. Um, and gradually the machines get bigger and bigger. And eventually we end up with these great big, huge um, factories with spinning machines in them powered by steam engines. So, so why does that happen? But very difficult to be completely clear as to why it happened in Britain at the time that it did. There's no counterfactual that we can kind of test out what it was exactly. But I, for me, the, the point really is masses of effort needs to go in in making that transition from the small domestic um, spinning wheel to the large factory. Loads of new technology is needed, but you also need workers to work in the new factories. You need lots of cash running around your economy so that people can build prototypes, that so they can experiment and they can fail. You need banks who can loan money to you. So when you start to kind of unpack what's going on, and of course, it's not just the cotton industry, it's happening on lots and lots of different levels, lots of different corners of the economy. What you start to see is that the British economy in the 18th century was actually already a very sophisticated economy. It was a traditional economy in that it's still mostly local and it's still um, mostly organic goods that are being made. Um, but it is a very, very sophisticated economy. It was a it's a small country, but a large effective economy. So Britain, when you drill down into um, British economy in the 18th century, it's looking different from many parts, even close neighbours such as France. It's looking quite different from France. It's looking very different from places like India and China 
which are large economies because they've got really big populations, but are not very developed economies. Um, so I think it's difficult to say what the uh, silver bullet is. What What is the one thing? I mean, I think there isn't a one thing. The reality is it was a very, very long process. Um, and a lot of groundwork had to be uh, laid down before the industrialization process really took off. Picking up on that point about it being a long process, we've got a question which I thought was quite thought-provoking from Julie Allen on Twitter, who asked, um, basically asked very simply, revolution or evolution? How would you respond to that? Yes, that's a that's a question that we often set our um, students in universities, revolution or evolution. And uh, it's something that historians have batted around over and over. Now, I think in some ways evolution makes a lot of sense because it is a very slow process and it had very, very long roots um, and even when it started, um, it's a slow process. I mean, in Britain, you know, even if you say, well, it's to do with the coming of coal. I mean, we're still looking at several, several decades um, between inventing steam engines and actually using steam engines in factories and then using them not just in some factories, but in nearly all factories. It's a really slow process. So evolution makes lots of sense. I do like the idea of revolution, though. Um, because the other idea that's embodied in a revolution is a kind of a total change. You revolve entirely. So revolution isn't simply about speed. Revolution is also about the totality of the change um, and the significance of moving away from a traditional economy to a modern economy is so profound and it's so significant and it impacts every part of our lives and I would say even kind of impacts things like the human the relationships that we have with other people in our life our relationship to knowledge to each other to our parents our siblings our friends our work everything these changes are so total that for me I'm happy to go with the idea of a revolution even if it is a slow and drawn out revolution. That's an interesting perspective. Um, and hopefully that we'll discuss some of those aspects a little bit later on. But I did want to ask you a question next um, from the Absola Evs on Instagram, who asked, who were some of the most important individuals that contributed to the Industrial Revolution? Oh, that's a lovely question. And um, I mean, the, the, the classic answer, I think, are people who invented some of the spinning machines. So Hargreaves, Crompton... Um, Arkwright, of course, developing factories. Um, James Watt is extremely important because he develops the um, steam engine. Then, of course, you've got steam applied to locomotion and to the, the building of the railways. You've got names like Stevenson. But I would also like to say, I think it's helpful to think not just in terms of these really big names, because behind all of these big names who are super significant are also thousands and thousands of people who worked in the factories, who gave up their job in the countryside in order to go and work in a factory. We don't necessarily have the names of those people. But if you hadn't had a society in which it was normal for people to leave their family home and maybe move to another part of the country and to work for wages, and if you hadn't had these people who were willing to do this, you would never have had the factories, you would never have had the workers, um, you would never have had these kinds of innovations that are going on. So in some ways, I don't entirely endorse the idea that we should write the history of the Industrial Revolution by trying to find the names of the big players, um, because I do think it's a very deep social shift. And it was actually really dependent on the labour of hundreds of thousands, millions 
um, probably of ordinary workers who were available to get the coal out of the ground, to work in the cotton factories, to drive the trains, to do all of these kinds of things. Um, so I like to try and think about industrialization a bit more broadly than just these big players. That leads us on very nicely because the next few questions that we have are all about the workers involved, the conditions and their lives. So um, you touched on this a bit a moment ago, but perhaps to go into a little bit more depth, Christy Marie XO on Instagram asked a question, which is whose lives were most changed and how did they react? Whose lives are changed? Your life is changed much more acutely if you are living in an area that is close to the heartlands of the Industrial Revolution. So if you're living in uh, around Manchester, Lancashire, maybe up by Newcastle, in the Scottish lowlands near Glasgow, these kinds of areas, these are the people living there are going to have their lives much more powerfully changed. And it's quite interesting when you look at the lives of people in the early 20th century, if they're out in a rural village in Norfolk, for example, their life is actually very similar. They will describe a life that's very similar to the lives that people were describing in the early 19th century, except for the fact they're much less likely to be hungry. Otherwise, many elements of their life, their working life is really quite similar. So uh, the people who are changed really are the people who are closest to the coal fields. That's where the new work emerges. That's where the new lives, the, the new factories emerge, the new work patterns emerge. Um, that's where you have railways. That's where you have the smoky city. So those are the areas I would say. What I think is very interesting is men and women's lives are both changed. Um, I think if you're in the industrial areas, children's lives are changed very significantly because historically there hadn't really been very much work around for children but people were very happy for their children to work you couldn't normally find work now you've got these factories and you've got children working from really young ages um so the changes you know people close to the industrial areas children men and women workers particularly i think your life is particularly um profoundly affected if you are working in one of these new industries Tim Walk asked a really interesting question, I think, on, on that fact, which is how did the Industrial Revolution change the psychological routines of the workforce? So he says, um, for example, attitudes, attitudes to childhood, sleep cycle, social interactions and those kind of things. I think, I mean, in some ways, it's a question that one could just answer all day long. I mean, how, where do you stop? I mean, there's so much. I mean, he mentioned sleep. I wouldn't normally think of sleep, but yes, sleep is affected. Um, and we could just kind of go across so many different elements like that. For me, what I think is one of the findings that I find really significant is I think that family lives are affected. And for me, that's one of the things that's really interesting. So before industrialization, because everybody's got such a struggle to make a living. The household works very much as a unit. Um, men are typically working for wages. Um, women will typically be doing domestic work and, and doing the, 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 the food preparation, but that will be very, very laborious and very time consuming. There's no ready meals, there's no refrigeration. So that's very kind of um, high value work for a household. Um, and because wages are low, the high, the, you know, the high value work of domestic, you know, the domestic work and the wage work have a kind of um, equivalence between them. Um, and families all really just have to huddle together and everybody has to do their thing in order to keep body and soul together. When you have industrialization, one of the consequences is um, well-paid waged work, particularly for men which is great for the men, but it actually can upset quite a lot of what's going on inside the family because now the man 
earn something that is much more value than the women can provide. Um, and as, of course, as time goes on, a lot of domestic work can be outsourced or you could buy ready meals. Um, you get water piped to your house. You have uh, gas or electricity that does the heating, so you don't need to make fires. So the, the the value of the women's work starts to become devalued. So for me, that's one of the really significant changes um, that families can become much more hierarchical. And I think maybe that's a microcosm of what generally happens with industrialization is society becomes very hierarch- much sharper gradations between the top and the bottom. So we, want, we don't want to have a kind of a glib, romantic view of the old days where everybody's equal. That's not the case. You always had some very, very rich, very powerful people and a lot of very poor people. But you tended to find there was a lot of equality amongst all those poor people. They were all kind of really poor together. You all have the same experience. And even that starts to stretch out. So you have much more diversity of experience amongst working people. So you have working people who are doing very well, quite uh, successful in life. And then you get the people who are completely left behind. Families become much more unequal. So for me, one of the big changes with industrialization are societies that are much more complex and much more unequal as well. Because of the differentiations in wages available. Absolutely. So now you before you really only had um, farm work that was available. All farmers paid 10 shillings a week. So everybody in the village, the men are earning 10 shillings a week, um, except maybe the ones who are looking after the horses. They might be getting 11 shillings a week. But you've got this, you know, you've got so little diversity in the wage structure that you have a lot of people living a very similar kind of life. I generalise slightly, but you get the idea. When you move into the factory, I mean, even within the factory, you can you know, your children are earning two shillings and six. And then after a few years, they're on to three shillings. And then some people are earning four or five shillings, some are earning nine. And then some of the women are earning 10 shillings and some of the men are earning 15. But then the really well-employed men will be earning 20. But then there'll be some people above them who earn 30 shillings a week. So you've got masses of gradation um, all the way across. Um, and, and then that's multiplied in families because families are made up of lots of different kind of wage earners all bringing home different amounts. So I think that is, um, yeah, that's that's the explanation. Well, one of the questions if we're talking about salary that we've had in is from Midnight NV 51 who asked, what was the average pay, which possibly is going to be hard to determine from what you say there. But I wonder if you could give us a sense of those different wages that you that you spoke about there, what kind of lifestyle they might afford you and how, say, um, work in, in a mine might dif- differ from work in a factory in terms of wages. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I, I think um, if we take the rural um, situation, it does vary across the country, but uh, and what period we're looking at. But in the early 19th century, we're probably looking at weekly wages of around 10 shillings, 11 shillings, something like that. That's the kind of typical um, wage that people might be earning. A miner might easily be able to earn double that. So it gives you a sense of the difference. And of course, then if you've got two, you've got a young uh, a father, but you've also got a son who's 15 and another son who's 18, and they're all living under the household together. You've got 60 shillings coming into that household. Um, It's really very different from your 10 shilling household. But for me, one of the differences is not just the um, headline rate of pay. And that's very significant. I think the other point we should say is that some of this well-paid work is available for women in the factories. That's a real novelty. Um, Women traditionally had only really been able to work as domestic servants. Um, Pay is pretty miserable. Um, Then you've got this factory work that's available 
only usually if they're childless. So it's very limited, the number of women who can do this work. But again, they might be on 12 or 13 shillings. You have examples of women working in the factory and quite soon earning more than their father has ever earned. So again, there's a real kind of upending of the normal social hierarchy when a daughter who's female and younger is earning more than the father. You can see lots lot that's going on there. Um, but the other, the other thing that I really want to emphasise is that it's not just about the amount of pay. The other thing that happens with industrialisation is there's lots of work available. The factories really need workers. Um, and this is a flipping of the traditional situation in a village where they don't need that many workers and there's not enough work to go round. If there's not enough work to go round, you're very lucky for the job that you've got. You're very grateful and you don't rock the boat and you do what you're told to do at work. Um, when the situation is reversed and there's lots of work around and if you don't like the way your boss treats you, you walk out and you don't bother coming back tomorrow, you go and find some work somewhere else, then the balance of power between the worker and the employer is really upended. So that's one of the really interesting stories about industrialization. lots of new work. Um, and not only is it well paid, it's quite empowering um, for those who can get it. I think that's that's an interesting and important point to raise because at least um, the way we're taught it in the in the English curriculum, quite often as a child, you think of the Industrial Revolution as a time of people in urban slums and being poorer than ever, as opposed to this rural Id- idyll they'd once existed in. But that's actually a slightly nuanced and different picture that you show there. Well, that's how I take it. I mean, I think you're right. There are certainly plenty of historians around there who argue that it, it was all worse. Um uh, you know, yes, there's some evidence and it, it could deteriorate for some people. I mean, not everybody. It's a very cutthroat society. So there are winners and losers. Um, but for me, I think it is important to emphasise that we mustn't over romanticise the pre-industrial past. If that was so great, why does everybody want to industrialise? I mean, there's a reason that we don't live that life nowadays, because it was really tough. It was really uncomfortable. Um I think the other thing to say about that life is most children went hungry. You know, people were hungry. There was never enough food to go around in Britain. Hunger was endemic. It was a normal experience for a rural child to go hungry at some point in its life, um, in its young life. You know, that's that's not that marvellous. Hunger is not a good thing. Um, The cities are kind of chaotic and dangerous and if you wanted to tell me that the workers were being exploited um, and that the employers were still getting more benefit out of their labour then yeah that's all true of course it was still unbalanced um, but relative to the opportunities that workers had prior to industrialisation for me I I prefer to put the emphasis on the fact that there were benefits. Still to come on the History Extra podcast in and of itself, they tend to be quite willing to move into the factory areas. But once they're in there, then they start saying, I think this is really dangerous. We think our hours are too long. Then they start to advocate for themselves quite effectively. So we've spoken um, quite a bit about women and gender, but just to ask a bit more specifically about that, Soraya Makeda asked, did the Industrial Revolution aid women to enter the workplace? So should we see it as a new watershed time for women in work or just a continuation of what was happening before, perhaps? 
I think there are two stories to tell about women. Um, one is, of course, if you're in the factory districts in Lancashire, then yes, there's lots of well-paid work. And it's really significant that these young girls can now go off and earn quite good money. Um, obviously, you only get the factories around Lancashire, really. Um, and in most other parts of the country, you're not, you don't derive any benefit. There's very little work for you available. So it's kind of, it's a switch. It's on or off. Um so definitely the girls who can work in the factories, I think there's a benefit for them. But what you don't have at this point is any really effective means of family limitation. So even when women can work in the factories, at some point, they're likely to get married. And at some point, they're likely to have children. And when you have children, you can't go and work a 12 hour day in the factory, particularly in this period where there's very little in the way of childcare. There's no running water. There's no electricity. You know, you just can't do, you can't run a home and look after children and have a job in a factory. So they end up retreating. Even in the factory areas, they end up retreating from the from the from the from the um, workforce generally. And for all other women, I don't see a lot of positive gains really. Not in the early periods of the industrial revolution. Um, as I say, the men tend to benefit much more than the women because they are earning higher wages. Um, what tends to happen is, I mean, that can be very, if you're married to a man who's earning good money, that obviously that can be a benefit to you, but it's also risky um, and it can make it can make you vulnerable because of the power imbalance inside the relationship. So I think the story for women is very, very complicated. Um, and I tend um, to believe that it's really only with the coming of contraception and women's ability to control their family size and therefore the amount of their lives that they devote to that kind of labour. Um, and that's obviously a 20th century story that we really get a significant change in women's position in society. One of the most common things that people search for is what were workers' conditions like during the Industrial Revolution? Um, what can you tell us about that? Workers' conditions were, uh, well, certainly in the workplace, I mean, horrific, horrible, horrible, horrible working conditions. Hours were really long. There's no concept of health and safety. And I know we mock a health and safety gone mad. But I say to anybody who wants to join in those jokes, go and look at a society that doesn't have health and safety. Because <laughs> uh, that's not that's not pretty um, at all. Um, uh, the actual circumstances of the workplace are very dangerous. So machines aren't fenced in. And if people do have an injury at work, they'll usually just be blamed themselves for that, they were careless. That's always the explanation. They were careless. Um, and that's why the kid's hand, you know, the seven-year-old hand got caught in a, mangled in a machine. Um, so very much I blame the victim. Then they, they just get laid off and there's no kind of insurance for them of any kind. So pretty difficult, um, but, you know, the, the actual work experience and likewise in mines, uh, on railways, as it, you know, health and safety just doesn't exist. So very dangerous working conditions. And that's also true actually out in the rural areas as well. Um, people will tend to pay people um, for the amount of work that's done, for the day that's done. Um, so in bad weather, very cold weather, rainy weather, people may still well be going out to work um, without kind of adequate clothing. So there's a there's an awful lot of um, health and safety problems arising in the countryside um, from really grim working conditions. Um, yeah, it's only, and I think it's one of the mysteries of industrialization. It's when you have industrialization, the workers start to, um, I mean, the experiences are 
dreadful um but it also it's at that moment with kind of modern industrial work the workers start to organize and start to unionize and they start to campaign for their rights well that leads us on very nicely to a question from georgia o on instagram who asked how prevalent was resistance to industrialization from workers Yes. Um, uh, there, there wasn't a lot of resistance from workers. I know there, there are well-known cases like the Luddites and occasional riots against machinery. But the employers who were using machines tended to pay higher wages. And of course, the reality is when you offer a higher wage, people are very willing to give up the low wage work they're doing in order to go and take the high wage work. So you tend to find no problems with um, workers moving into these new um areas and it's actually once they're in there that's where they start to become agitators um so they're not really resisting or they're not effectively resisting factories and mechanization in and of itself they tend to be quite willing to move into the factory areas but once they're in there then they start saying i think this is really dangerous we think our hours are too long then they start to advocate for themselves quite effectively so it's more about conditions than about industrialization that's right. Yes, that's what I see, that people tend to, exactly, you put your finger on it there exactly, that they start to agitate about their conditions of the work, not about the nature of the work themselves uh, itself. And I mean, other things very clear, you've very little evidence of workers um, starting their life maybe as a farm labourer, moving to the city and doing industrial work, and then going back to the countryside. They almost never go back. And I think that tells its story as well. However unpalatable the city work is, there's something about it that's more attractive than the rural work because they just don't make the journey back to the village and start working on the land. Um, I like the way that this next question is phrased, so I'm going to throw it at you. Um, It's from Annalena Agel, who asked, um, was the Industrial Revolution as dirty and corrupt as the drama and movies make out? Uh, Yeah, I think it probably was very dirty, actually. I think it was very dirty. I mean, I think it was very dirty in England because um, it's all coal-based. Other places, other parts of the world industrialised with electricity, which actually could be quite clean, and the dirt is... The electricity generation happens elsewhere and it can be quite clean in some ways, electricity. But for England, it was all about coal. It was all about these big steam engines, these very greasy machines. Um, yeah, I think there's an element of, um, of you know, the, the those communities would look very grimy and very dirty to what we're used to today. Okay, so now we've got a few questions about the consequences, um, reactions to and consequences of the Industrial Revolution. So I might throw these two together at you. Um, So Christy Marie asks about contemporary attitudes to the Industrial Revolution. And Josephine Wong on Facebook also asked about how the Industrial Revolution was portrayed in arts and literature of the period and what the kind of, as she's phrased it, what the zeitgeist of the time was. Yes, that's um, a great question. And I think um, I've been talking, where I do my research, I tend to try and look at um, sources of records that have been written by working class people who are kind of working inside the factories. And I think that's partly what leads me to say, do you know what, they seem to be quite positive about their experiences. At the same time, um, most commentators, most of the people who are producing art 
and literature and poetry are not the people who are working in the factories, obviously, because they're busy just working in the factories. They are the middle class elites. They're the educated elites. They're the people who don't actually go to work in the factories. A very different um, version of the Industrial Revolution emerges from those kinds of records. So um, artists, poets, writers tend to be very doubtful about industrialization. They tend to be quite fearful about it, quite skeptical. They view it as a dangerous development um, and particularly they're concerned about um, dirt, squalor, cities, smoke um, and possible dehumanisation that, that, that we are now working to the rhythm of the machine rather than the natural cycles um, of the planet. Um, as I say, when I think when I look at workers who are living in the countryside, they don't tend to be nearly so romantic about these natural cycles. But certainly the the highbrow interpretation of industrialization that tends to come from elite commentators is much more pessimistic. And I think that partly, you know, you said earlier about your experience of having been taught industrialization in school and having picked up the fact that it was obviously quite a quite a dislocating, difficult but difficult, unpleasant experience. Um, I think that, 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 that these middle class ideas that were kind of formulated in the 19th century about the degradation, the loss, the nostalgia for the older, cleaner, happier days, um, I think that still actually colours the way we think about industrialisation today. Yeah, and I think those portrayals of the dark satanic mills in, in poetry and in art can be very lasting, can't they? Very lasting. And if I could just follow up, I mean, you probably have seen the um, Olympics opening ceremony, Danny yes, Boyle's opening yeah. ceremony, which really embodies a lot of that dark satanic mills ideology and those ideas. And I think that does, does give us a sense as to quite how long lasting and durable this interpretation has been. Um, I think that another thing that comes up quite a lot if you're taught this in school, and one of the recurring themes is always child labour. So we've got a couple of questions about um, how that played out. So Mrs. Kerry Jean asked about when laws against child labour were brought in and how that affected business. But I might just pair that with another question from Kingston Reads, which is about how the Industrial Revolution affected education. Yes. OK, they're both great questions. Um Factories have this voracious demand for labour and some of the tasks are very simple and very repetitive. So you don't need to pay an adult to do them. You can pay children to do them and then you just pay one adult to supervise the 15 children or whatever that you've got in your room. Um, so you get lots, particularly in the factory areas and the factory districts, you do get lots of um, children moving into the factories. And in those areas, that's obviously very pernicious for their schooling um, because um, whereas before there was nothing much you could do. You couldn't find work for a seven or an eight year old child. Nobody really, normally nobody wanted to employ a seven or eight year old. And if you've ever had a seven or eight year old child living in your house, you can understand why they're useless. They can't do anything. They won't do anything you've told. They've got no strength. They've got no concentration. So you can't normally find work for them. So the factories change all of this and they, they, they can find work because they can also pay for supervisors. And of course, then these children who may have been in school largely because their parents wanted them to be somewhere during the day. Um, these children may have been in school and now in work, and of course that is detrimental to their education. So it's 
pernicious. And this is one of the drivers, actually. Um, concerns about children's education is one of the drivers to get try and push children back out of the factories. And there is a series of legislation for starting in the early 19th century. And then really all through the 19th century, more and more laws are passed, limiting the age at which children can start working, um, the number of hours that they can work. Initially, this is all focused on children in the factories, but then little by little people are noticing, do you know what, even outside the factories, you've got children working, maybe we should stop that as well. Then new laws saying not only should children not work, they ought to be in school. So it's really a story all through from the from literally from 1800 to 1900. You've got society grappling with the fact that all of this work is available for children um, that it's negative for the children and then proposing progressive solutions, little drip by drip by drip all through the century. So now we've got some slightly more general concluding ones. Um, Ali G243 on Instagram asked, who won? Who were the winners in the Industrial Revolution? And actually, I'll add to that, who were the losers? Yeah, who who were the winners and the losers? I think there's the moment of industrialisation itself. There is that window of the most rapid change. Um, you know, for me, that's kind of the maybe from 1820 down to 1850, where you've really got these rapid changes that are occurring. Who are the winners? Well, obviously, those people who are owning the means of production, the factory owners, the wealthy, the landowners, if you're mining the land. Um, you know, people who are already wealthy are definitely winning during this period. Um, I think also workers who managed to find employment in these sectors are, are winners. So there are definitely some working people who are, who are winners. If you manage to find yourself a job as a miner um, or as a factory, uh, a factory worker, it might sound horrific to us, but it was so much better than anything else that was available. The navvies as well, people building railways, for example. Um, for them, that well-paid work that gives them a lot of freedom compared to what they were used to before. So I think those male, so there's definitely some men who are male workers a much smaller pool of women who can work in the factory, but it's much smaller because men work all through their lives. But for women, it's just a little window before they get married. Um, the losers for me are the children. Definitely the children, um, because they're being forced into the factories at younger ages. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I think we can we kind of university, we can say the children. And then I think there's a different story. There's like, as industrialization, you know, it's because it's such a long game. Where does the story stop about winners and losers? Um, I think if we take a very narrow window, um, I would say the, the wealthy and healthy male workers are the winners and the gains for everybody else and other family members are much more tenuous at that time. But here we are today, you know, are we all winners nowadays as somebody who works in a call centre a winner of the Industrial Revolution? Would they be better if they were still working in the land? You know, it's very subjective, really, as to whether we interpret that as a good thing or not. Very subjective. So next we have a question from Mr. Patterson Teach, which I think is telling us a bit about his agenda with this next question, which is what's the most common misconception about the Industrial Revolution and how should history teachers, which I get the sense he might be, best address it? I think... Um, I think for me, the, the commonest misconception is that um, the Industrial Revolution was a very bad thing. And for some reason, we as a society really hold on to the idea that industrialisation was bad. It was dislocating. It was particularly bad for the workers. 
it was a problem. And I mean, there is some truth. I mean, there are some people who for whom it was very bad. And I think a child who's working very long hours from the age of five or six, who may not have been working if they had been living in the country. Yeah, I think I can, I, I, I don't want to sugarcoat that. I don't want to suggest that's not a problem. Um, but generally, do I think it was bad for all working people or all people who weren't wealthy? No, I don't. I think there were um, there were benefits and there were gains. So for me, that's the that's the thing that I think we should we put that into our understanding of the industrial revolution. It was a time of winners and losers, but some of those winners were actually the working people themselves. So I've got two concluding questions, which are both huge. But <laughs> you can treat them as you will. So we've kind of discussed this throughout, but just to nail it down, how did the Industrial Revolution change Britain? Because the the Industrial Revolution is ongoing, really. It, it never, I mean, I think there's no, unlike other kinds of revolution, there's, just, there's, there's no point at which we turn back the clock to being a society which is dependent on the... I mean, most of us now don't even really know what vegetables grow locally. We don't even really know what their seasons are. We just are so... Even from the food that we eat. Um, and it's impossible for us to imagine that the clothes that we wore came from our environment as well. I mean, clothes don't come from the ground. They come from the shop. I mean, you know, what? You know, we have no relationship to, 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 to the, these kinds of products. And as for things like mobile phones, um, you know, we cannot locate them in our geography and in our environment in any, any kind of way. As a historian that spent a long time studying this, why was the Industrial Revolution so important? Why should we really care about what happened? Yeah, I mean, I think because it just takes us to the heart of becoming a modern nation. Basically, we just, as I say, we our our, our relationship to our environment has changed beyond all recognition. Our relationships to each other, our relationship to the world of knowledge has changed. I mean, you didn't need a lot of book knowledge when your major priority in life was to get stuff out of the ground so that you had something to wear, so that you had some house to live in and so that you had things to eat. Um, now we take these things for granted and we spend a lot of time um, acquiring knowledge and trying to understand the world around us. So for me, industrialization just completely changes the place of humans in the world. Um, prior to industrialization, and I simplify a little bit, but we're kind of like the animals. Our job is to try and get food and shelter and warmth. And we were doing this much more sophisticatedly, but still we're kind of trying to just keep body and soul. That's what most of us are doing most of the time. Yes, of course, Shakespeare's putting on his plays. It's not entirely the case that this is all everybody's doing, but most people are still involved in this grind. And now we are not involved in this grind. Our relationship to... Um, our environment, our world, and our reason for existence has completely changed um, in just absolutely phenomenal ways um, that are just a source of kind of ongoing um, interest and significance and importance. That was Emma Griffin. Her books, Liberty's Dawn, A People's History of the Industrial Revolution, and Breadwinner, An Intimate History of the Victorian Economy, are both available now, published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear James Holland on the Battle of Sicily. A 
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.